KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now back to the show. Coming up. Gun violence is still raging in Philadelphia, and this week the feds step in and community groups step up. We have an emergency on our hands, and it can't wait any longer. Why dozens of organizations say they need a $100 million investment from the city. We gotta be willing to leave even if it's not popular. Plus, hear from kids most likely to shoot or to be shot. Two young boys got, got shot playing basketball. We can't do nothing. We can't do nothing out here. We dig in. Then she transformed the image of the Philadelphia Public Defender's Office. People talking about the Public Defender's Office like they had faith that we could actually bring about justice for them. The city's chief steps down her takeaways. Coming up, we'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our focus, yet again, is gun violence. It is the emergency in Philadelphia, and this week, federal law enforcement officials announced that there will be more federal prosecution of gun cases, more FBI and ATF involvement in Philadelphia. Then on Friday, dozens of groups demanded that the city invest $100 million into boots-on-the-ground efforts to stop the killing. Black men make up 85% of the city's homicides, so today, I wanted to take a minute to let you hear from some black boys in their Teens, they're under state supervision for gun crimes. I left out their names, but I let them explain what it's like for black youth on the street. Two young boys got, got shot playing basketball, and I feel as though like we can't do nothing. You can't do nothing out here. Yeah, one of my homies died. It hurt, but like in this generation now, it's regular. See every day, so like, like, you're so immune to it. Like, like how, how to stop somebody, like probably pull them to the side, try to talk to them or something. As of right now, I don't think none of that going to work. Just do, I just lay low, I stay in the house, you feel me? Go to my program, come in the crib. That's the only option I got is stay in the house. What we need to do to kind of prevent it, I feel as though y'all need to, it need to be more like recreation centers. Not for us, we already of age, but just like our nephews, our little brothers, our little cousins need to be more like recreation centers. Because now all kids want to do in, in Philly right now is probably and it, get dressed, look good, and have a gun on them. You got to kind of get them out that mindset. That's not the way to go. All you're going to do is get, what, 100 years in jail or you're going to die. I mean, if more people interact in these programs, then, like, I ain't going to say everybody going to change, but you probably get a nice percentage of people that change. Do you feel like you're changing? One thing that changed, I ain't carrying no gun no more. Heartbreaking words from boys most likely to shoot or to get shot. Greg Thompson runs the Don't Fall Down in the Hood program at the Institute for the Development of African American Youth in North Philadelphia. He works with these youth. Greg, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. This week, explain what you do specifically, who you work with, and how programs like yours would benefit from extra funding. The Don't Fall Down in the Hood program is an adjudicated youth program that works directly with the juvenile court. The juveniles who have committed crimes with guns, who have been caught with guns in their book bags, caught with guns in a car, caught firing a gun up in the air, they haven't really committed very serious crimes like shooting. But juveniles who are carrying guns illegally loaded, they are placed 
in the youth study center for a certain amount of time. And then they're subsequently released. They're released to the community and they're released under house arrest. They're assigned a probation officer and then they are assigned a program. The program is don't fall down in the hood. We work with these young people three to four days a week, but we're in contact with them seven days a week through curfew checks, through monitoring and so forth and so on. And we expose them to a series of workshops that helps them understand how to stay safe, how to prevent crime, how to access resources if in fact you find yourself in trouble, to give them a different way of thinking about the situations and the scenarios that they may find themselves in, and to offer more support and resources to their families that may not have had those resources. One of the pieces that is unique for Don't Fall Down in the Hood is our monthly parent meeting. The mothers from moms bound by grief, sharing their very personal heartwarming stories. And they sit across the table from mothers whose sons are in trouble with guns. They have this real heart-to-heart -heart conversations with moms about what they need to do because their son is on a path that may lead them to death or certainly to jail. Essentially what the mothers from moms bound by grief, what they do is they indict these women. And they say to them, y'all not doing your job. And it gets contentious sometimes, you know? Some of these parents are, in some ways, are complicit. Yes, they are. So we got parents who are really enabling these young people and actually afraid, or not just afraid, where they just feel like they just don't want their kid to be mad at them for telling them what's right. We're, we're, we're living in a time where it's almost honorable to be dishonorable. I got a chance to talk to a group of them. Thank you for allowing me to chat with them. They are living afraid, feeling in some ways they have no choice but to kind of lean into this life. They seem to like believe that they could die at any moment and that their only option really is to stay at home or to fight it out in the street. Your reaction to this, and then how do we change it? Well, I tell you this, uh, and don't fall down the hood, we have a leadership team. Because they do so well, they exemplify exactly what we want the young people to see who is in the program. And we took them to Bethlehem to a Japanese restaurant where you cook your own food. It was amazing watching them. They felt safe. They was with us. They were out of their homes. They were cooking their own food. They were doing, they were just being kids. It's sad that they have to get out of their environments, to get out of their neighborhoods, to feel this way. And that's what the problem is. The problem is the neighborhoods are out of control. Moms, dads, grandmoms, uncles, everybody's feuding. Everybody's fighting. Everybody's saying, you can't let them get away with that. Oh, no, we're going to get you. I mean, adults are doing this. It's like there's some type of shift that has happened with our people in our community. There used to be a time that the adults, when they got involved, they said, no, y'all gonna stop this. Now they're out there fighting with them. We are in a crisis. And here's the interesting thing. Voices like yours and mine, voices of reason and hope and what, what, should, be, what should happen in terms of nonviolence, our voices in terms of being respected for what we're saying are beginning to diminish. Because the overwhelming sense is, oh, no, you can't let them do that. You ain't going to let them. I mean, it is crazy. So this infusion of cash that folks are asking for, how would this shift that overwhelming culture of chaos 
that and something many believe are is the result of year after year of trauma? The first thing is the infusion of cash is going to give us much more access to reach more people, to provide more services, opposed to just 30, we can ramp this thing up to 100. There's so many groups all over the city that are doing great, phenomenal work. But what happens is a grant will come down and everybody's got to fight for the grant. And there's only one person that wins. If you get too many grants, then some of the agencies and organizations are trying to figure out, well, how are you getting all them? So, and even in that of itself, because of this lack of funding, it creates craziness, even amongst the people who are trying to provide the services for um, young people to stop them from doing crime and violence. And I got to say this, this is really important. On February the 14th, Valentine's Day, Lamar Stewart from uh, the district attorney's office and also Larry Krasner, we rolled out the plan. We want $500 million. We also want the probation and parole to really step up services around people who are on probation and parole for gun violence and attempted murder. We wanted them to step up the warrants. For instance, do you know that there are thousands of people wanted by the law for very serious problems, very serious crimes? Some of these people are drivers of crime. We also ask that the bail commissioner who sets the bail for people who come in who have very serious situations. We're asking, pleading with the president judge, with the bail commissioner to follow the suggestion of the DA's office and hold $1 million bail because of the state of the emergency we're in with gun violence. Officers are also frustrated because they do this amazing work getting these guns. They're really getting the guns. But guess what? When they get into the courthouse and they get finally arraigned and, you know, mom comes into court and says, you know, I'm on dialysis and you know, I know he had two gun charges before and I know he has a history of violence, but I need him right now. And they let him go home. And then two months later, he's found with another gun. It's crazy what's going on. Is, it, is that because of the COVID? Is that because of the pandemic? It seems like they're not trying to lock these guys up during the pandemic. Or is this something that has persisted before the pandemic? This is something that has persisted before the pandemic. I think it's because of bail reform. I think it's because of Black Lives Matter. I think all of these different issues about over-policing and using these um, strategies against African-Americans, that's unfair, um, you know, giving them higher bails than anybody else. But we are in a state of emergency. I've had people on the show who said, you know, they want more police. They think there should be a crackdown. You know, at the rally, they said, we don't want more police. We think more programming. You seem to have a mix. I, I, I say that everything has to work together. We need more programming. We need more police. We need more intervention. We need the court to hold people. Only if we're looking at this as an emergency. Everything. My father used to say, every spoke in the will is valuable. When the Fed stepped in, I said, thank God. These criminals are running our streets unchecked, unchallenged, and unafraid. And they know that, you know, Larry Krasner is not really tough on crime. He's, he understands that the African-American community has gotten a bad shake, and they really have. But in this situation, we have to slice the pie. These people who are driving crime in our city deserve to be held at the highest bell, and they also should get the highest levity of the law in terms of 
when the penalties come down. They have to be held to it. That $100 million, you have these young people that you serve who feel like they had to carry guns because their life is on the line. How do you protect these young men? Because 85% of the homicides are Black males. They feel like is kill or be killed your response to that. That is absolutely true. They are living in communities where they are warring over the internet. They call themselves gangster, uh, internet gangsters. When I see you, it's on site. If I see you, all this craziness. They're shooting at each other in their homes. They're shooting at each other in their cars. Unafraid. These young people, they're afraid. All of this is based on fear. Until we get the guns, we got to get the guns. They're not going to give us the guns. That's why we need law enforcement. And that's how come it's ludicrous to think that we can't do this or we, no, we could do this alone without the police. It is sad that these young people, I have young people afraid to get on the train. The court orders us to drive them to the program and drive them home. I, we have young people that have been shot twice and miraculously have survived. This is a state of emergency. We have to decide how we're going to move. This is the first time in Philadelphia's history the ward leaders have been divided on endorsing the DA. I mean, that just goes to show you how crazy this is. Krasner has, has been nothing but admirable, scandal-free, and, and no indictments and craziness under his name. Why is it that he's not endorsed by our party? Because our party is split about the way he's handling the people in jail. And so it seems like, and, and we got to wrap up uh, just because we're short on time, but I, I want to say that, you know, this hundred million dollars is just one of the, of the, uh, of a myriad of things you think need to come with this idea that gun violence is the emergency in Philadelphia. Absolutely. Gun violence. This is the weekend. It's not going to be too bad this weekend because we're going to have rain and we're going to have low temperatures. But that's going to change in the, in the coming days. So we're going to have a lot of violence in our streets. I don't know how many people have to die. That's the other thing. I just don't know how many people have to die before our leaders step up and say, yeah, we do have to set up checkpoints. We do have to put armed people on corners. We do have to, you know, the, everybody's talking about the police commission. I know you got to wrap up, but, you know, you actually interviewed me, so I got to talk a little bit. Um, everybody talks about the police commissioner, decent, respectable person, came to this city because they wanted to do good and really has a heart to do good. But this is overwhelming for one person. She's not handing out the guns. And when she drives down the street, they're not giving them to her. So for her to be taking a political hit is wrong as well. This is wrong what we're doing, blaming our leaders because they can't get people to get the guns. No, a lot of this responsibility has to do with us. It has to do with our leaders as well, but everybody has to do it together. And we have to be willing to lead even, we gotta be willing to lead even if it's not popular. Yeah. Even if it means that you don't get elected again, but at least you did the right thing at the right time. Wonderful, and with that, I want to say Greg Thompson from IDAY. Thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint. 
Thank you so much. Next up, she made sweeping change to the image of public defenders. We have created value for our services so that the community can trust us. Philly's chief PD steps down her exit interview coming up. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our Newsmaker of the Week made headlines when she announced she's stepping down as Chief of the Defender Association of Philadelphia. Kier Bradford Gray is no stranger to the show. She broke racial and gender barriers when she became Chief six years ago, making sweeping change. And she's here to discuss her tenure and her April 15th departure. Kier, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. So the countdown is on for your last day. How are you feeling? Wow, I'm feeling like this is an end of an era for me. You know, I've been a public defender, of course, at different levels my whole career. And now I'm switching into the private sector. And it's both exciting and the sky's the limit. So after 22 years, why did you decide, you know what, I'm going to stop doing that? Well, the decision didn't come easy. When you do something for a while and you have reached the point where you feel like you have put your all into something and you've had some modicum of success, when opportunities come, you got to realize, is this the right time for me to change course and go into things and areas that I've always dreamed of going into? When you talk about going to a firm, you talk about Montgomery McCracken, and you'll be a partner there. A lot of people don't even know the structure of um, public defender. Explain what, you know, if you can encapsulate it briefly, like what it was and then how you had to flip it in order to make it meet the needs of today, as you mentioned. We as public defenders are traditional lawyers. We are constitutional protectors. And so we go into those courtrooms and we really fight for people's constitutional rights where there were violations, but we also fight for the right to have a fundamentally fair trial, which is called due process. And that's what we did well. Some of the areas that we've built upon was how do we take what we do outside of the courtroom to meet the needs of our client base where they are. We expanded our mission, not just for trial lawyers and competent, zealous advocates in court, but we were policy advocates outside of court. We were solution drivers outside of court by bringing in uh, creative partnerships to help deal with some of the issues that we know the people that come into this system face. We were um, community-driven partners. So it's not just having a relationship with the community, but actually creating a strategic opportunity for the community to be a part of our process. You created a, a, a new language even, you pre-entry. know, as, as a leader, pre-entry. You were like, Cherry, pre-entry. Let me explain what it is. Is <laughs> it a re-entry? It's pre-entry. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Which was groundbreaking for a public defender's office, which Most people don't even know who the chief defender is in their city. You know, I think that's the part that I'm most proud of. The fact that we have created value for our services so that the community can trust us. 
and, and feel like we are there to really support them and work on their behalf versus being an actor in the system that only cares about the system's uh, perspective. But I, I have to clarify something. I didn't create participatory defense. I learned about it in 2012 when I went to um, California and I heard about this wonderful initiative that they were doing out in California in Silicon Valley. And I'm like, whoa, that's it. We need that here in the East Coast. So I was able to get it started in Montgomery County and it's been going strong in Montgomery County. But I'll tell you, when I came to Philly, I believed that we were gonna have a hub in Philly. Boy, lo and behold, Philly, you, you give Philly something, it, it goes like wildfire. <laughs> uh, we have nine hubs. That means nine community justice hubs structured to empower their own community to learn about the system, to understand their opportunities to get better outcomes and to be hold their public defender and the system accountable to making sure that they are advocating for the direct needs that that community is, is offering. I have to step back and say, pre-entry is also one of my babies. And the way pre-entry was birthed is because we started looking at the cash bail system and saying, why are we only using cash bail to deal with whether or not a person should be in jail or out of jail? And it was, oh, I get it. We have no other options. So why don't we create something that really looks at the front end of the system that gives us much better opportunities to understand who people are, what their needs are, and whether or not there are mechanisms that we can put in place so that they can be shuffled into community supports. If they do well for social issues, then why are we going to brand them with a lifetime conviction? And so that's, that has always been the vision to shrink the system's opportunity to convict somebody and brand them with a, that scarlet letter C. And it has been operationalized based on some of the team that we were able to put together here. I mean, the team here is phenomenal. George Jackson, Kate Parker, Kavita Goyle, Connor Bell, they have been amazing with helping me operationalize that vision. And we put together a coalition of over 150 programs in the city that is stepping up and saying, instead of putting this person in jail with a low cash bail, well, they'll sit in jail for eight months. They can join our program. We'll keep them progressive. We'll communicate with their defender and make sure that they are doing well. And if they are doing well in a year, district attorney, progressive district attorney, why do we need to continue with this prosecution? And during COVID, we've been able to have those really good wins where people have been released into our pre-entry coalition whatever program that they fit in. And we've been bringing the information back to the district attorney saying, this person has been doing well for 12 months, nine months to 12 months. Um, we believe that a withdrawal is in order of the charges because they have finally gotten the, the support that they need and they're thriving. And it has been accepted in many occasions by the district attorney. And that makes me proud and happy because people who don't have to get a criminal conviction, which is debilitating, are not getting that because it's the right thing to do. If there's another thing you would say you're most proud of, what would that be? I'm most proud of bringing awareness about the types of advocacy that the defender has is capable of. I mean, the Michael White case really showed shined a light on the advocates that we have here, but also the need for resources. Remember, Michael White's case could not have been possible if we didn't have technology to bring into the courtroom. And that technology was invested in by Senator Hughes, who, who gave us almost a quarter of a million dollars to put into our technology infrastructure. 
that couldn't have been possible. That victory couldn't have been possible if we didn't have community relationships the way we did so that we can develop the types of witnesses that knew about him and could actually be better witnesses on the stand. And lastly, you know, we needed resources and money to be able to travel to Florida to find information that we needed in order to really show the the totality of the circumstances of the case. That costs money. And also to hire experts. Um, The district attorney always has experts in their cases. And a lot of times defenders are hamstrung because they don't have the, the funds available to hire the necessary experts that they do for a particular case. Well, we did. And I have our city council to thank for that but also the relationships that we built with our city council to understand that our our office didn't just serve a necessary evil. It actually advanced public safety if we did our job right and if we understood the needs of the community better so that we can be better advocates and better solution drivers. For the record, uh, Kier, you actually ended up being counsel on that case, Um, something that you rarely see a chief do, and you did that at a town hall that the Defender Association hosted. And people were like, they would rather have you and your office than some of these paid attorneys who never call them back or whatever. When you hear something like that, how does that make you feel? I think that was everything, Cherry, because when I was a young public defender, I would also often hear, I don't have a lawyer, I have her. You know, and I'm saying, wait, excuse me, I'm a lawyer. I didn't get my license from a crack check box, right? We would also be called public pretenders. And that's a that's really demoralizing to people who, who kind of go through law school, come in with this altruistic view that they're going to make a difference and not be valued or respected for the work that they do. So when I heard people talking about the public defender's office, like they had faith that we could actually bring about justice for them. And they had faith in us that we would actually do the work required that is music to people's ears. That is like the mecca of what you want to understand from, or want to hear from the community about the services that you're rendering. That is probably the most prideful part of, of my tenure. And let me just tell you a quick story about that. We were doing a, um, with Enon Tabernacle, we were doing a, I think it was self, uh, safe surrender program where people who had warrants, old warrants can come in and turn themselves in. No, they will not go to jail and they'll get a new court date. Well, we were sitting outside and a guy comes out and he yells out loud, I got the public defender. And all of us looked like, is he talking about us? (laughs) You know, because he was so happy and excited. And it was a a testament to the work that we were doing. It was a testament to how we were showing up in the communities. And it was a testament to the fact that people started to really understand that these were not fake lawyers. These were not lawyers that couldn't get a job anywhere else. These were lawyers that really wanted to make a difference in the lives of people who could not afford big law to buy them justice. We, we've known each other for years, but I didn't know you know you, but I remember seeing you out and you were leading things quietly. Like you had a relationship with the players, a coalition, Malcolm Jenkins, you were working to do programming. But the headlines used to always refer to other people like you weren't even there or we give the lead, the leadership position to someone else. And then it's like Michael White happened and it was like, boom, they finally realized that you were a leader. Did you feel some kind of way about that? No one can sit there and say, oh, I don't care. And I can say I I have to thank you, Cherry, because you've been there and you've seen all these things and you've always made sure that you have given the credit 
uh, that you thought that I deserved. And I, I really thank you for that. But I will say this, sometimes the, the quiet storms win the battle, right? So when people aren't giving you the credit, that means they're not, they're not even seeing you coming. And you can continue to do the work that you want to do and make the changes you want to make changes without worrying about the barriers that people are putting up because they know that you're there. Mm-hmm. I've always been the underestimated person, which has allowed me to just stealth-like do things that I need to do to get to victory. And so I do think that's one of my strengths that people do underestimate me so much that I'm able to just do what I do and get in and, and finally get to the, the point where I can say or claim victory. And so that was Michael White. I'll tell you, when I joined that case, there was so much skepticism and there was so much like, you know, laughter. Like, what is she doing? Is she crazy? Um, she doesn't have, she doesn't know what she's doing. She hasn't been in the courtroom. And I just sat there and took it. But then, you know, I show improve when 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 the when when it's time to show improve. I don't have to tell you what I'm going to do. I show you better than I tell you. And so I, I think that has been one of my 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 best gifts, but also the best attributes that I've had in order to be successful. You got that acquittal, and then it was just like everybody was like, "Oh, who is she?" Everyone's like, "Who is she?" You know, twenty year overnight sensation. Right. I, I gotta ask you because I mean, you were on our show talking about Black women leaders being the first. You were the first Black woman to serve in your current role. As you exit, how do you think you did? Not just for you, but for the collective. I think I showed up like a Black woman shows up. I think that one of the things that Black women do, especially in these spaces where we're working for populations that have been marginalized uh, and sometimes, you know, just very vulnerable, we share those common experiences from our lifetime. We have understood what it means to be devalued. We have understood what it means to be uh, marginalized. We have understood what it means to be in situations where there's like a duality of an intersectionality of your, your experience. You know, I show up as not just a Black person, but a woman, and then a Black woman. Those experiences really helped me to do the things that I knew I needed to do for the the communities I care so deeply about. And I feel like I put everything that I understood about how that communities or how these communities feel into it. I filled gaps that other people could not see. I made sure that there was fundamental fairness at the heart of everything I, I did. And at the most, I led with efficacy, but also courage. And I did not have a transactional relationship. My relationships with people were principled and I never escaped or wavered from my principle, no matter what was going on in in the city. And I I do say that in a a way that, that has deeper meaning, because when you have a principled way of leading, there's nothing that comes at you that can waver from those principles that would allow you to take shortcuts or, or kind of pivot from what you know is right. Yeah, it's going to be hard because I, I'll tell you, when the gun violence went up, it was hard to still fight for fundamental fairness and reform. But I stayed the course and I made sure that we did everything we could to make sure that people understood that we are not going to abandon what we understand is, is necessary in this time. Criminal justice reform doesn't mean less public safety. It actually increases public safety when you do it the right way. And while other counterparts or other stakeholders kind of pivoted from reform to kind of meet the needs of the people that wanted more for public safety and gun violence, we stayed the course. And I'm proud of that because if we didn't stay the course, then we might be back in 19, you know, 90s 
when we were on the war on crime or with the war on drugs and what the crime bill that really caused us generationally to be in some of the situations that we're in now. And so I got to say, you're going to Montgomery Crack- McCracken. You're going to be a partner there. Will you be back in the courtroom? If I can help it, absolutely. I will be back in the courtroom. That's where I'm, you know, Cherry, I'm not an administrator anymore. I have a chance to be a lawyer again. And so this is the best part of it, right? I can use the things that really make me tick, made me who I am to uh, make change in a certain way. But another thing that I'm excited about is I'm going to be working with the corporate sector. And so this is going to be interesting, bringing all of my full self into that and really examining their practices, their policies, their bottom line, their mission, and really infusing more equity into that where I can and where it's necessary. So I'm excited to bring me, who I am there. I hope they're ready, but I'm definitely (laughs) excited. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But you're a principled leader. I mean, you've made, you've shown that you know, you know how to push when it's time to push and that you, you, you serve up results. If you think about it, what are some, a couple of takeaways that you say, you know what, this is, these are a couple of lessons that I learned when you separate yourself from what, what policies you shifted, but as a leader, what did you learn? You're going to have to understand that power is infinite and it's only best used when it's shared. And so if you try to keep all the power to yourself, you're never going to get things done and you're never going to be able to advance meaningful trans transformation. So you can be a leader or you can be a transformation leader. And a transformational leader understands that you don't have all the answers, but you ask the right questions and you bring people to the table and allow them to share in the victories by giving up their, the power that you have and get, turning it over to people who have more solutions than you can bring by yourself. So I think if, you, if you're guided by that, everything you look at is an opportunity to share and collaborate. The reason why we are still dealing with this issue with policing is because the the understanding of power and authority is hoarded by police. And when they share that power with community, I think they will come closer to really developing better trusted relationships. But right now we don't have that. We have authoritative and non-authoritative, power and no power. And those never mix to, to develop better opportunities for people. So as we wrap up, like I mentioned, first Black woman to serve in your seat, is there an open door for, you think, other women of color? Oh, there definitely better be. And if there's not, then someone is, is definitely not understanding history. Black women, and I'm not just trying to put a plug for a Black woman because I am a Black woman, but we know what we bring. And there are things that, there are times where we are needed tremendously. And I think right now, is that time. Please, any Black woman that wants to step up in, in these spaces, do so. We need you. And so I got to I gotta make sure I link to all the other interviews you've had um, on Flashpoint to talk about various initiatives. And I want to say thank you for being an amazing guest on the show. And I hope that you'll be back in, a, in other capacities as well. Oh, trust <laughs> me. We haven't even seen, and you know me, I'm not a big bragger. I, I really like to get things done in a way that people don't just kind of see me coming and stop, like I mentioned before, there's already a vision for where what I'm trying to do. And that's going to be worked on. And you know, you know how sometimes you got to go away a little bit and then reemerge, but you will definitely see me. And of course, you're going to be one of the first people I call to say, hey, Cherry, I got this. <laughs> that's good stuff. Well, I wish you the nothing but the best. Thank I know you. this is only the beginning. April 15th, it's her last day. Kia Bradford Gray, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thank you.
Next up is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. You can share as much as you want or as little as you want. A Montgomery County-based group efforts to connect with survivors despite the pandemic. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you are a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Audacity app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KWW, we are all about community, and April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and a Montgomery County-based nonprofit is pushing forward in its effort to support survivors during the pandemic. Here to share their month-long programming is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Community Education Supervisor for Victim Services Center, Jessica Carson. Jessica, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming your Victim Services Center. For folks who've never heard of VSC, what exactly do you all do? Victim Services Center, we started out in 1974 as Women Against Rape. We are the Rape Crisis Center for Montgomery County, PA. And then since then, we've expanded our services to become a comprehensive crime victim center. So not only do we serve and support victims of sexual assault, but we also serve victims of other violent crime, sexual assault victims, harassment, robbery, theft, survivors of homicide victims as well. Our services are free at no cost to crime victims and their loved ones. We have counseling services. We have advocacy and education, and we have a 24-7 hotline. Wonderful. And so we've seen a lot of things shift during the pandemic. Could you talk about how you guys service victims and survivors before and how that has shifted since we've been on lockdown? Yeah, as um, I'm sure a lot of other great organizations and groups, we all had to figure out how are we going to continue and find and establish a new normal. So before the pandemic, the way we see and serve and support clients, we have walk-in appointments or we schedule appointments with our clients. Um, We meet in person at court, at the hospital, and have that dialogue and um, come up with strategies and options for the victim. And then after COVID, we had to figure out how are we going to continue services remotely? We had to face many challenges. We received support from our funders. We're a nonprofit charity organization. We were able to get technology in place in order to provide counseling remotely. One other hurdle was going to the hospital because of COVID. The ER is busy with handling COVID patients. And and on top of that, we we still have sexual assault victims um, that need medical help as well. So unfortunately, we had to navigate that and figure out how can we provide emotional support at the hospital. We ended up having to provide that through the phone because of COVID. Yeah. And you think about it, we, we covered this issue with Sexual Assault Awareness Month earlier this week. And one of the things we found is that the number of calls have gone down, but text lines have gone up and that 
there is fear that less crimes are being reported because folks are living with abusers. Yes, oftentimes when it comes to sexual assault or any other crime, the perpetrator, the offender, the person committing the crime is someone that the victim knows. It could be a loved one, someone that they live with. So when we are in a pandemic and we are forced to live with our abuser or the person that's harming them, that might prevent or create obstacles for that victim to reach out to resources and services when they don't have that privacy, they don't have a means to escape or be separated or away from that person that's abusing them because we have these stay at home orders. And there's some other unique barriers such as um, some victims don't have access to technology um, in order to do remote counseling or even phone counseling if they don't have a cell phone. So all of these different hurdles in the past, they were able to just come to our office and get services. And now they couldn't do it because of the pandemic. But you guys have already set up programming for this month? Yeah, there's a lot of different um, things that we're doing. The goal for Sexual Assault Awareness Month is to raise public awareness about sexual violence, educate communities on how to prevent it, and just bolster prevention efforts throughout the year. Number one is outreach. We're asking businesses to help us spread awareness about sexual assault and help victims and survivors access services by displaying educational resources and um, displaying our our brochures and flyers in their facility. So if you're a business listening to this segment, please reach out to Victim Services Center, uh, victimservicescenter.org. We can drop off these items. One is a window cling on the door or a window that says we support and believe survivors. And then having these resources in your facility, like a coffee shop, is going to create safer spaces and protective environments for survivors when you have that available. We also have webinars. Every Thursday, there is a webinar um, event happening on different topics. And we even have a webinar series on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. for children ages three to seven. It's called Consent for Kids, where I read a story um, related to personal safety, respecting boundaries, and just helping kids understand that their body belongs to them. So when should people call you? Our hotline is 888-521-0983. And it's 24-7. It's a hotline for anyone to call. It could be maybe you're the person that experienced some kind of trauma, or maybe you're a loved one, a family member, or a friend that's concerned about someone. You can call our hotline too in order to learn how can I support my friend or family member that's um, suffering from some kind of trauma that happened to them. When you call our hotline, you're in control of that phone call. You can share as much as you want or as little as you want. You can remain anonymous. You can talk about anything that you want during that call, and you're not going to be pressured to do one thing or over the other. It's just a conversation in a safe space to talk about your trauma. Where can people go online to find you and to get the full schedule of events? Victimservicescenter.org slash Sam, S-A-A-M. That's where you can find all of the event information, register for the webinars to get the Zoom link. Wonderful. So, you know, know that your body is yours. Consent is required. Thank you so much to Jessica Carson for coming on Flashpoint. Check out their website, victimservicescenter.org. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one for world-renowned physicist Albert Einstein. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we use 
when we created them. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.